crises produce uh, political polarisation to the left and to the right. And we're seeing that around the world at the moment. Perhaps the clearest example being the fact that Marine Le Pen is in the runoff for the French presidential election, the leader of a fascist organisation, the National Rally, and is in with a serious chance of becoming the next French president. But you look around the world and you see the polarisation to the right taking place in many other ways. India, the largest democracy in the world, is led by Modi, a member of the BJP party, but whose roots are in a paramilitary fascist organisation called the RSS. Uh, and he has used his, his uh, time in power not just to launch neoliberal attacks on workers and peasants and farmers, but also to encourage and unleash absolutely horrific attacks on the Muslim communities uh, in, in, inside India. You look at the Ukraine conflict, and we know, because everybody is trying to tell us, there are Nazis on both sides of the conflict, fighting openly as, as members of the far right. You look at the situation in Australia, and we had, I think it was last year, we had Nazis essentially on manoeuvres in Garryward, which is the Grampians in Western Victoria, uh, chanting white power, Ku Klux Klan, and, and basically uh, proud of their presence in a uniform way. And of course, here in Sydney, we've had comrades, the family home of comrades, actually directly attacked by Nazis. So people are worried. There is a shift to the right as part of that polarisation which scares people and therefore the question of how we respond becomes extremely important and there are a range of responses. Some people's response is to say ignore them and they'll go away. Others is to say that we should rely on the power of state bans. So there are a flurry of state legislation going around the country banning the open flaunting of the swastika. But that begs the question, what do we do about the people who want to flaunt the, the, the swastika? There are those, particularly in the mainstream of politics, whose response to the far right is to accommodate them. And so in France, Macron's racism has been an attempt to steal votes away from Le Pen, but of course has just led to a situation where racism, extreme racism and Islamophobia is more and more respectable, allowing the far right to expand its, uh, its impact. And then there is the option of confronting the Nazis. And that's what today's talk is about. It's a, a case study of a serious attempt to mobilise by the Nazis in Melbourne between 1993 and 1998, and a very serious attempt to mobilise against them. And it was a serious attempt that had at its heart members of the predecessor organisation of Solidarity, known as the International Socialist Organisation, and a number of us who were in the organisation in Melbourne at that point are in the room today. And through our leadership of the anti-Nazi organising, we made a very conscious attempt to apply the theory of the United Front, not just as a theory, but as a guide to practical action in trying to fight back the Nazis. Now, in terms of the background to those events, because many of you were not around in 1993 to 1998, we had uh, a Labour government which had just snuck back into office, despite it being very, very unpopular, a government led by Paul Keating, which had got in after a recession that Keating said we had to have, and very high unemployment, and got in only because the Liberals made a miscalculation and were very honest about the attacks they were going to launch on the working class. And it won Labour three more years, but not three more years of popularity. 
In Victoria, a Liberal government led by Jeff Kennett had got in in uh, October or November 1992 and immediately went on offensive against the working class. It shut 350 public schools. It sacked 40,000 public service workers. And while the initial response from the union movement was absolutely tremendous, the bureaucracy dialed down the, uh, the dispute and it left a society very badly damaged and with a lot of grumbling and, and muttering. Halfway through this story in 1996, Pauline Hanson gets elected and then subsequently launches the One Nation Party. And during the course of this period, an organisation called the Australians Against Further Immigration, which was essentially a middle-class, anti-population, anti-migrant organisation, actually got very substantial votes. In the seat of Warringah, which uh, here in Sydney, which people are holding up as you know, a wonderful seat that's going to once again elect a progressive independent, there was a by-election in Warringah in this period and the uh, anti-immigration people got over 14% of the vote. And in these circumstances, uh, an, a Nazi organisation called National Action, led by a man called Michael Brander, and based in Adelaide, tried to capitalise on the discontent, the job losses, the racism, and the general sense of crisis in society. And with all due respect to uh, people from Adelaide, you are not going to lead the Nazi revolution from Adelaide, you have to break into Melbourne or Sydney if you're going to be a serious player in Australian politics. So in 1993 and 1994, National Action began the process of establishing a base in Melbourne. There were a couple of little flurries at the end of 1993. The first seemed to come out of nowhere. A group of Nazis flying the swastika, it was a tactical mistake they never repeated, they never used it publicly again, but the first time they tried to go onto the streets in Northcote, which is an inner uh, northern suburb of Melbourne, they were met by an ad hoc response by socialists and anarchists and driven off the streets. It was a little bit of the, the first indication of the issues to come. And then later in 1993, we discovered that in a pub in Melbourne, it's called the Sarah Sands, it's still there at the southern end of Sydney Road, Brunswick, so right on the edge, you know, inner city, inner-city Melbourne, a very similar to suburb, say, to Newtown here in, in Sydney, that Nazis were meeting and drinking. They'd got some share houses in the area, and they were meeting and drinking and displaying swastikas in the pub. And so we felt that this was the challenge that we could not back away from, and that was really, in a sense, the first part of the campaign. And along, alongside this, there was a rise in attacks by Nazi skinheads. There was abuse against people of colour on the trams in and around the area. There were some attacks on houses, there were attacks at train stations, and uh, in the eastern suburb of Bayswater, a group of uh, skinheads went on a rampage chanting Romper Stomper. People might remember there's a movie, Romper Stomper, which was about Nazis, Nazi skinheads in, in Victoria. Now, before I take you through the narrative, I want to stop a moment and talk about the United Front. Because I said in Brunswick Against the Nazis, which later became Campaign Against the Nazis, under our leadership, we consciously applied the theory of the United Front. And that's not very well understood, even around the left. For many people, it's simply code for unity. And of course, there's nothing wrong with unity, but there's much more to it than that. Uh, for some on the left, it's seen as bringing together a coalition of the far left. But that's not how we understood it, 
because we drew on the writings of Leon Trotsky, the Russian revolutionary, who theorised the United Front for the Communist International, the world grouping of revolutionary parties, in 1922, in a period where the revolutionary wave that followed 1917 was beginning to retreat, and revolutionaries had to begin to cope with the idea that revolution was not necessarily imminent, and therefore they had to find ways of winning support from workers who were looking to the reformist parties, the social, dem social democratic parties. And Trotsky went on to uh, elaborate his arguments through the 1920s and into the beginning of the 1930s as an urgent response to the rise of the Nazis and uh, the seizure of power, the eventual seizure of power uh, by Hitler in uh, the beginning of 1933. And so Trotsky argued that we as revolutionaries have to organise independently. In today, if we were members of the Labour Party or the Greens Party, we could privately hold many views, but we could not organise around those views. It would be difficult to argue for those views, and it would be even more difficult to mobilise on the basis of those views. That actually revolutionaries standing apart from the reformists in order to organise is of fundamental importance. But the mass of workers who look to the Labour Party and the Greens, I'm talking now in Australia today, don't follow us just because we've got good ideas. They still have trust in, believe it or not, in Albanese or in Adam Bant or in all the people who make up the leadership at national and local level of, the, of those parties. So having formed our independent organisation, which today for us is solidarity, uh, he was, Trotsky was talking about a time, of course, where he was talking about communist parties which were made up of tens and hundreds of thousands of revolutionary workers. So the scale was different, but the principle was the same. We have to organise separately, but we have to find ways of working with workers who look to the reformist leaders in order to win their trust, in order to be able to win them over. We cannot simply demand they join us, and we cannot, uh, we cannot certainly head towards a seizure of power, an insurrection, an overthrow of state power without their active involvement. And so the United Front was a conscious attempt to find ways where revolutionaries could work with reformists under circumstances where we faced a common problem, a common challenge from the right. So, of course, increasingly through the 1920s, that was fascism. After the rise of the fascists in Italy in 1922 and then the rise of the Nazis through that decade and into the early 1930s. And in Brunswick, it was the question of, fasci of, of fascism, of the Nazis organising. And revolutionaries take part in this activity openly and proudly. We make our arguments, we, we have our meetings, we sell our publications, but at the same time we try and work in common cause against a common enemy with members and supporters of reformist organisations. But that alone is not enough because in order to get a significant body of Labour or Green supporters in behind the campaign that we want to see happen, we have to put pressure on the leaders of those Labour and Green supporters in order, in a sense, to legitimise the struggle. And so there's a dialectical push and pull. The leaders of the reformists don't like protests. They don't like marching on the streets. It's not their comfort zone. They don't want to really mobilise against the Nazis, however much they may disagree with them. So in mobilising amongst uh, ordinary Labour and Green supporters, we put pressure on the Labour and Green leadership. When we win support from the Labour and Green leadership in turn, it opens up new avenues to bring other people into the struggle. 
So in a sense, that's what we went about. On a modest scale, that's what we went about in Brunswick at the end of 93, beginning of 94. And we understood we had to do two important things. We had to name the Nazis as Nazis, because many people who are sympathetic to elements of their anti-immigration argument nonetheless will shy away from the Nazis if they are named, and we have to deprive them of the streets. Because Hitler argued, mass demonstrations must burn into the little man's soul the conviction that though a little worm, he is part of a great dragon. And when we stop the Nazis from, uh, from marching, when we stop them from organising on the streets, we stop them from intimidating people of colour and uh, Muslims and Jews and people of, of, of different uh, situ situations, we turn those little worms back in on themselves and they give up. They may not stop being racist, but they will stop organising as Nazis. So that's what we were trying to do. Just a footnote on this, because a member of Socialist Alternative has written a paper which covers this period, which was published in the, in the, uh, uh, the journal Labour History. It's got some factual errors in it, but it also has a lot of factually correct information. It's worth noting that the largest of the small revolutionary groups in Australia today, Socialist Alternative, explicitly reject what I am arguing we did in Brunswick in 1993 and explicitly reject that we as revolutionaries should apply the United Front tactic in the situations that we face today. Their argument being that until a revolutionary party is big enough, it will simply be subsumed by the reformists and it will end up losing any kind of effectiveness. But there's a very simple way of countering that. You have a sense of scale. We didn't go to Paul Keating to say, join us against the Nazis in Brunswick. We went to a leading left-wing Labour councillor who had been a former mayor of Brunswick, a guy who we knew through various activities, who's since died, but a guy called Andy Ingham, and said, Andy, there are Nazis drinking in the Sarah Sands. And we didn't respond by immediately just marching down there. We could have got together some socialists, some anarchists, walked down there and made life hell for the, the owner of the pub. And we probably would have won. But we deliberately decided to take the argument out into the community, to take some time to build at least the beginnings of mass support. And we did that involving this Labour candidate, the former mayor. And we went to the local shopping centre and for three or four or five weeks in a row, we petitioned against the Nazis. We said to people, do you realise there are people wearing swastikas drinking in a pub 500 metres down the road from here. Isn't that disgusting? Join us. We are going to march and present this petition that you're going to sign to the owner of the pub to ban the Nazis. And so we organised, we marched. We'd already won by the time we got there. He told the local paper, no, 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 there'll be no Nazis drinking in this pub. And it was something of a, a dress rehearsal, but it established a couple of important things. We called them Nazis. We involve people from the Labour Party from, from the get-go, especially uh, somebody with a little bit of standing in, in the community, more standing than we had as, as, in, as individuals. We set ourselves, we gave ourselves time to organise. It was not simply a knee-jerk reaction by sections of the far left. It was a deliberate attempt to, to mobilise. And of course, through all this, we didn't pretend to be anything other than who we were, revolutionary socialists uh, in a the organisation called the International Socialist Organisation. And then can, next comes the next round, because Brander and National Action were certainly not going to give up on the basis of a couple of little flurries. 
And on the 5th of March 1994, it uh, was scheduled a multicultural festival, an annual multicultural festival centred around Brunswick Town Hall. You know, it, it was an opportunity for the very many migrant communities in Brunswick to come and sell food and dance and play their music and generally be proud of themselves and be proud of the community. And the Nazis said they would turn up on that day of the multicultural festival in the name of stopping Asianisation, in the, in, the, in the name of preventing us being flooded by Asian migrants. And again, we had about a month to respond, and we responded with the same kind of methodology, mass leafleting. We went out to ethnic communities and argued why they had to join us in, in, in uh, uh, mobilising at the town hall because these Nazis were a threat to them and to everybody they, they knew and they cared about. There were articles in multiple Chinese newspapers which we helped place uh, which explained who these uh, Nazis were and when the rally was going to be. We reached out to a series of indigenous organisations successfully. We had leaflets published in, I, can't, I hope I've not forgotten languages, Italian, Greek, Arabic, Vietnamese, Chinese, Turkish. And we tapped into resources because, for instance, we had workmates of Marcus, who was then a public servant, from all those uh, ethnicities who actually helped translate the leaflets for us. We tapped into the local working class to write those leaflets, which could then be distributed. The rally was endorsed by Kurdish organisations, Filipino organisations and Jewish organisations. And trust me, the arguments around Palestine were just as fierce in 1994 as they, as they are today. But we approached Jewish organisations and a, a young um, Iraqi comrade of ours at Monash University went to the local Jewish society and said, you must join us in this rally against the Nazis. And one way or the other, Somewhere between 200 and 250 people from the Jewish community mobilised. And they knew they were mobilising alongside anti-Zionists. They knew they were mobilising alongside people like us who supported Palestine, but they also knew we faced a common enemy and it was important to stand together. And we did not make support for Palestine a threshold issue. You did not have to uh, break with your Zionist views to stand to, alongside us against the Nazis. You hope that in the course of the struggle, perhaps some of those assumptions might begin to break down. And remarkably, some of those Jewish people walked from Caulfield, which is in the southeastern suburbs, because Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath and they couldn't uh, operate machinery. They couldn't drive themselves there or get a tram. That's how dedicated uh, they were. They were nervous, but they were dedicated. And the Nazis lost their bottle. They announced that, oh, due to one reason or another, their rally was put back by a week. And we told people, we're still rallying. And people rallied at the town hall. We declared we had defended the multicultural festival. We distributed, because we were organised, thousands of leaflets saying, come back next week, because we've got to stop them for real ne next week. And we marched uh, just to get some practice in. And then comes Saturday... Uh, the 12th of March 1994 and the Nazis had said they would gather at the town hall at whatever time it was I don't know, 11 o'clock and we said we'll be there at 11 o'clock and guess what, they turned up at 10 o'clock so when we get there, there are Nazis outside the town hall they never got to more than 25 or 30 but there were Nazis outside the town hall and our numbers grew and our numbers grew and our numbers grew and the estimates vary but between 800 and 1000 people turned up 
we filled Sydney Road, which is a significant road in, in, in Melbourne, and we formed a semicircle around them where they had their backs to the town hall. They were completely surrounded. And people got eggs and they got rotten fruit and the horses began to, the police horses began to do what they did best, which was produce shit, which people could grab with newspaper. <laughs> and the Nazis had to be bombarded, stand there to be bom bombarded. I saw, not many people seem to remember this, but I remember this, a group of bikies turned up and they had obviously turned up to support the Nazis. And they looked at the balance of power and they went, perhaps we'll go shopping. And they, dis and, and they disappeared. The leader of the Nazis got up to speak and he was hit by an egg in the mouth as he opened his mouth to speak. They were utterly humiliated and in the end they could only get away because the police formed a corridor, they took them around the corner, literally stuck them in an empty warehouse until the train came along and then shepherded them onto the train. We ran them out of town. And they didn't like it. They certainly did not like it. They attacked the La Trobe University Student Union offices a couple of days later. It was clearly payback. But compared to the humiliation they'd suffered, um, it was clearly that it was, you know, it was, the, it, didn't, it didn't balance out. We'd won and they'd lost. Interestingly, the mayor of Brunswick, not the guy we'd been working with, but the current mayor of Brunswick, had said beforehand to the media, we don't want demonstrations. We don't want trouble. We don't want to cause, uh, um, bring attention to the, the, the national action. Uh, people should be peaceful. People should be quiet. People should be passive. After that rally, she came to the media and said, the people of Brunswick have spoken. It is clearly right to protest. So while we tried and we worked with people in the Labour Party, we never limited ourselves to the most backward person in the Labour Party. We worked with the best elements, not the worst elements, and through our success we dragged people along side us. I should say for that rally, we had the support of one Labour MP, two trade unions, two state secretaries of trade unions, and a number of student unions. Now, there were a couple of other incidents before we get to the next main, main chapter, so I'll move along. Firstly, the Nazis came back in 95. There were quite a long time between mobilisations, and this time they mobilised outside the state parliament. There were 37 of them. Brando was uh, charged with hitting a protester, uh, an anti-Nazi protester, over the head with a flagpole and was subsequently found guilty in court. About 400 of us turned up. It was a bit more of the, your standard standoff. Then we had another incident in early 1996 where the Nazis attacked the house and car of myself and Judy McVeigh in Brunswick. They came in the middle of the night and they painted gigantic swastikas on the front of our house. We actually slept through it, believe it or not. They smashed every window in our car outside and they covered the car in swastikas. Now, take it from me, it is really embarrassing driving your car to the insurers to get it assessed for damages when it's covered in swastikas. A lot of people gave me funny looks uh, on, uh, in, in, the day, in the days that followed. And that was an attempt, clearly, to, to, to scare us, because they were coming back for another go. But we took a very simple proposition. They attack us, we step forward. They attack us, we stand up and call them out. They attack us, we call on our supporters to take to the streets. And our response to that attack was to call a rally, marching from Brunswick Town Hall, which seems to be a bit of a feature of this, of, of this talk, to our house, 
And that was addressed by a Labour MP, and hundreds of people marched through the back streets of Brunswick to our house in front of the TV cameras. And although I was a bit nervous on the inside, I stood in front of the camera and said, they will not intimidate us. And they didn't come back. Then comes the, the next... <laughs> and I'm going to have to move along, otherwise I'm going to overstay my welcome. Next, the next significant and really last element of this, and that is in early 1997, the Nazis opened up a shop, supposedly a bookshop, although I suspect most of them never got past the title page of Mein Kampf. But they sold, they had posters saying, shoot the human trash of boat people, stop the Asian invasion, land rights for whites. It was a clubhouse, in other words. If they'd been bikers, you'd call it a clubhouse. Um, and it was a clubhouse. And they opened it, interestingly, not in Brunswick, but a few kilometres further out in a suburb called Faulkner. Much poorer, much more working class, and probably the rent was much cheaper. So we mobilised again. And we held a protest in March... Which year am I talking about? 1997. And again, we did not just call a rally because lefties like rallies. We worked and organised inside the community to make sure that when the rally happened, not only it was as big as it could possibly be, but people understood why we're marching, and even if they were passive, they would be passively on our side. We visited 40 workplaces to go to union delegates and workers and ask them their, for their support. We door knocked all through the suburb of Faulkner to explain to people that Nazis had moved into their suburb and they were, they were the people who wanted to do what Hitler did and put people in gas, chamber, in, in gas chambers. We handed out thousands upon thousands of, of leaflets. And by the time we got to the rally, remember we started with one la Labour councillor at the beginning of this story? and then two Labour MPs. By the time we got to this rally, it was four Labour MPs, 11 union branches, some, some at workplace level, some at, at, uh, at, at um, state level, the three most active local ALP branches, Victorian Trades Hall Council, and two of those MPs turned up and spoke. Kelvin Thompson, who was actually on the right of the ALP, and he was a federal, uh, federal MP who had, uh, shall we say, allowed us to make the acquaintance of his photocopying machine at regular intervals in the, the run-up to all this. But he turned out and spoke, and he was on the right of the party, but he knew that Nazis in his neighbourhood was bad news. And then Carlo Carli, who was a state MP from, from the left. And seven or 800 people marched through Faulkner, marched to the shop, surrounded the shop, and we couldn't get in. There was police and all the rest of it, but we humiliated and isolated the Nazis. And we mobilised several more times. Several more times. We picketed the business of the, the guy who owned the shop in Faulkner. He owned a business in Brunswick. We picketed his business. And then we finally get to the point where the local paper carries the headline, Group Quits Shop Lease. They ran away owning, uh, owing $2,000 in rent. And their offices in Adelaide, their headquarters, the phone was disconnected. We broke national action. It took us from 1993 to 1998, but we broke them. And in the process, we built more and more working class support, more and more support in Labour Party circles. The Greens didn't exist then at that point. Because I should mention what I regard as the best moment in the entire campaign. It's not the egg hitting the Nazi mouth. 
It's at the first rally at the Faulkner Bookshop. 50 members of the Electrical Trades Union at Fort Broadmeadows walked off the job to join the protest. 50 electricians went on strike to join us. And that's why when you look at the, the theory of the United Front, you have to scale it. We couldn't have gone to Paul Keating. We couldn't have gone to the ACTU. It was completely beyond us as a small revolutionary organisation. But we could go to the reformist activists and leaders in the area, build united activity to name the Nazis, to block the Nazis, to humiliate the Nazis, and on the basis of that, we could grow a campaign that was bigger and bigger and bigger. So I'm going to finish up, I think, four lessons. The first, it really flows on, I think, a little bit from what we heard from the Amazon worker. It's a marathon, not a sprint, but not in the sense of doing nothing, but in the, in the, in the sense that you don't simply get the existing far left and go and do something. You consciously decide to bring people in around you. You're building a campaign. You don't know how long it's going to last, but you're building it for a long-term long objective. And therefore, it's worth spending some time laying down the foundations. If we hadn't done what we did right back at the beginning over the Nazis drinking in the pub, I think it would have been much more difficult to get to the point where two Labour MPs were addressing our rally and electricians were walking off the job. There's a causal link uh, between those points. The application of the United Front, as Trotsky understood it and as we interpret the spirit of that today, was absolutely fundamental. The rest of the left is constantly pulling us away into a campaign which is a campaign of the left, as opposed to a campaign of revolutionary socialists mobilising people well beyond our, our, own, our own ranks. So having the organisational weight as a, a small revolutionary group, but large enough to be able to carry off the argument and, and to use the spirit of the, the United Front was incredibly important. And as I say, while we always tried to involve reformists, we never uh, said that we would go at the pace of the slowest reformist. We tried to push the pace, but by taking people along, along with us. You have to name the Nazis as Nazis. You have to deny them the streets, and we did that. After their gathering outside the town hall, and by the way, the Australian Jewish News has a picture of the Nazis standing outside the town hall. They're a pretty sad and sorry bunch when they're surrounded by a 1,000 people. After that occasion, other than hit-and-run attacks on La Trobe Student Union or Our House, they actually never got onto the streets again. They never got onto the streets again. They had to hide in their clubhouse. Rather than it being a source of strength, it was a source of weakness. And the last thing is, throughout this whole process, we have to build a, a fighting socialist alternative because the Nazis were trying to, to capitalise on a sense of dismay and despair caused by unemployment, caused by recession, caused by job cuts, caused by school closures and, and all the rest of it. And simply saying stop the Nazis, of course that's necessary, but we have to say we need to smash the system that allows the Nazis to breed and, and to organise. Now, of course, we cannot claim we smashed capitalism in Brunswick and Faulkner in the 1990s. Otherwise, we'd be doing something much more interesting uh, today than we're, we're doing. We could be out there building the new, the new society. But we proved that revolutionary socialists can help lead forces much broader much wider than ourselves, 
And in the process, we can build our credibility, we can build our numbers, and we can build our influence, all the better to build new united fronts of struggle for the challenges ahead.